My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me today is Mr. Alan Edward, the uh, divergent trader himself. When I hear divergent trader, I think contrarian, but we'll get into that. Alan, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? And what are you doing currently? My name's uh, Alan Edward. I'm the divergent trader of the divergenttrader.com. I'm a full-time trader, mainly focusing on swing. Used to do day trading for a while, but moved up to swing trading. And uh, yeah, that's the basic gist of my story so far. <laughs> so talk about what made you become a, a full-time trader and what were you maybe doing before uh, trading? Oh, right. Yeah, what I was doing before. So I was stuck in like dead-end jobs. I was like a, a warehouse worker for a while. Well, not for a while, for quite a few years. Just stuck in a rut. And then uh, eventually one day my cousin was trading and he was showing me the the strategies that he was using. And he, he piqued me interest. He, he made it look, it look like it was really easy, you know. It's the, uh, the the common things, you know, you think it's going to be a get-rich-quick kind of thing. Little did I know, it would have took me about five years to get it down. But yeah, that's how I got started into it. And then what I did then was, you know, I worked really hard, studied it, created my own strategy. And I strategically found a job where I could spend 90% of my time on, you know, on my laptop so I could test my strategies and, you know, gain the experience. So I ended up working in a, a vape shop for uh, quite a, few, uh, a while. And then once I started getting caught consistent, you know, I started building my accounts, eventually went part-time, then full-time. And then, uh, yeah, that's where we are today. Okay. So your cousin started showing you how he trades. Talk about what were the, some of the things that you gravitated towards in those initial months and years, meaning what types of books did you go to? What types of educational resources did you look at? Yeah, cool. So yeah, when I first got introduced into it, you know, it was all like the standard patterns and support and resistance, things like that. And what I started gravitating towards was more, well, first it was like trend following. Um, I, I remember reading Michael Covell's book on trend following and that really stuck with me. You know, just getting a trend, trade different asset classes and eventually you'll catch one and, you know, that you'll get some big wins and they pay for the, all the small losses and, and things and you make a profit on it as well. So trend following was the main thing that I started on and I started finding success in that. My first system was like a mechanical trend following system, just a simple breakout over an EMA. It was a horrible, it, I was profitable on it, but it was a horrible system because the drawdowns were really tough. So as I evolved, started, you know, making my own approaches, rule-based approaches and evolved a bit more and created my own systems. But now it's, it's still the same type of thing. I just trade mainly breakouts. So I've just evolved from the trend following more to breakout so it's the same kind of style really okay so, so you use that word system a few times there sounds to me and i gather this from your own profile that mm -hmm. you're not discretionary in determining when to trade you're doing it based on very specific rules that you've developed yeah so how i like to describe it my, like when i say rule-based approaches is i do technically trade discretionary systems but i trade them in a systematic way that's almost mechanical you know the rules are very strict so yeah, it's basically mechanical. I do have mechanical systems that uh, I do do trade, but when it comes to the breakouts, it's very systematic. You know, it's very objective. Okay, so let's expand on that because I think this is important. I'm pretty cynical of most things that people reference in terms of having predictive power. I'm a big believer that you have to test things. And of course, even if you test things, you know, over a long period, it might work, but in the small sample, it may not. Talk about sort of the, the importance of doing rigorous backtesting and how you yourself went about you know, seeing if those rules that you were coming up with actually had merit or if they were just random. Yeah. So yeah, the backtesting is so important. I think it's the 
you know, it's the foundation of confidence, you know. You've got something to reference when you go live. So if you're like hitting a drawdown, you know, you can look at your, your tested data and if it's normal, you know, you get the confidence to keep on going. So the testing is is a big thing that I, uh, I stress uh, to my students and things like that. So yeah, when it comes to testing, you know, I'll, tre- I'll test over 10 years. That way I, I'm, uh, I'm testing the outlier event, you know, like the, the black swans. So I know if it can withstand, that gives me extra confidence. I like to test hundreds and hundreds of trades, really get, that's where I find confidence, you know, in large sample sizes. But yeah, I forgot what the question was originally, sorry, right? Yeah, and, and just in terms of sort of the, how, how do you even go about the testing? I mean, you talk about R, you talk about Excel well, or easy language from TradeStation. Yeah, that, that part I think is also important. I get the sense that people, when they hear backtesting, they think, yeah. yeah, you need to almost have like a stats background. Yeah, oh yeah. No, when I first started, it was just simple Excel spreadsheet that I used. Auto-calculated, you know, the win rate, uh, total gain. So I, I used to do that manually by hand over hundreds of hundreds of trades. Nowadays, if I'm back testing, there's real good software out there. Now, I, I quite like Forex Replay. That's a, a really good one that I'm, I'm using at the moment. That calculates everything and things that I couldn't possibly do myself, you know. But yeah, originally, it was all by hand. But I think that was quite good, really. You know, you really, you're more attuned to it when you do it manually, in a way. What types of areas that you focus the testing on. So I, I say that purposely because, you know, you can find a signal which looks really great on a particular stock or maybe a particular sector, but it maybe only works on that one stock and one sector, right? I'm a big fan of the idea that if something is going to work, it really should be sort of consistent yeah, yeah. on average, right? Throughout multiple tickers. You know, I totally agree with that. So yeah, one of the main things that I always look for is a robust strategy. You know, I don't want it just working on one market. That doesn't give me confidence. You know, I think it's pretty, it can eventually stop working. You know, you never know when. So yeah, I'm always a big proponent for testing multiple markets. So for myself, I trade lots of different markets like Forex, indices, commodities, bonds. So yeah, that's all the markets that I tested on. And they say, you know, apparently only 30% of the time markets trend. So it's important to be diversified, you know, have plenty of markets to catch these trends. So yeah, I agree with you on that as well. Do you find that of those different asset classes you tested, forex, commodities, stocks, that some are easier to trade from a rules-based perspective, there's less noise, there's more persistence? Yeah, there is. So I categorize them in two two types of market. There's trending markets and then there's mean reverting markets. So there's some that tend to, you know, trend more than others. So like gold is a good trending market, NASDAQ, things like that, pound USD. And then there's the mean reverting ones like the Aussie pairs, New Zealand, they tend to mean with, uh, in the Forex market. So I do adapt how I trade them. My management style is different. But the trending ones, you know, I can give them more room, let them run. But with like the mean reverting markets, I still trade them, but I am more more fixed on the targets and things like that. So yeah, you have to adapt to uh, certain markets and there's definitely different characteristics for certain ones. Do you consider where we are in this cycle in terms of maybe which asset class to to rotate a rules-based approach around? I mean, look, you can have a, to your point, you know, trending or mean averting. Maybe in a recession, things are more mean averting. Maybe in an expansion, things are more trending. Yeah, maybe not maybe, right? But talk about that part of this because, you know, one thing is to have rules and another thing is to figure out, well, what's the opportunity set you want to play with? Yeah, I've always got what we saw. I just go through them, look at my setup, if it's there, the trade, and that's it. There's no real, um, it's all mainly technical based. I rarely use the fundamentals. So yeah, I'm just looking for the signal, the entry criteria. Once it's there, I enter. It's really that simple. I'm a big believer in keeping it simple. 
It's what was best for me. So you mentioned at the beginning that you initially did day trading, then went more towards the swing trading side of things. My yeah. theory is what, why is that? And I'll preface this by saying my own back testing shows that day trading is largely more noise, more random. And, you know, you and I both know that you tend to have much more movement close to close as opposed to open to close. So there's more volatility potential to make gains, right? And losses that way. But talk about that because I think that's a, you don't often hear people extending their time frame. You often hear people talk about how they shorten it. Yeah. So it's quite a few things why, why I did it. I mean, the main one was for like, like I got into training to, you know, have more, like to expand my life, you know, to make money, to enjoy the things that I want to do. So that was a, a big thing. You know, I wanted to have more time and stuff like that. The other side of things was focus and willpower. So I find the longer you stay at the charts, you know, it's kind of like a cell phone battery, you know, it can deplete. And with day trading, you, you end up like, for me, I was trading like two to three hours, sat there waiting for trades, you know, getting uh, my focus draining, you know, that kind of thing I thought was affecting my performance. You know, I wanted to optimize my willpower. So if I'm only having to spend, you know, five minutes entering and exiting, then I can get on with my day, I'm going to perform much better. So that was uh, a big part of it as well. And yeah, I just wanted to simplify uh, everything. You know, I didn't want to be stuck at the charts eight hours a day, watching the screens and things like that. And it, it definitely improved my performance, you know, because I'm not, not obsessing over it. Okay, so now let's talk about years that you've found to be easy versus years that you've found to be hard. If your approach is primarily on the breakout side, I'm going to make mm-hmm. you see something that, you know, in you know, volatile periods, broadly for markets, it's hard to kind of find really good, juicy opportunities because, you know, there's false breakouts, you know, in that kind of environment. Talk about the types of environments where that breakout style tends to do well versus not well. Basically, on the technical side of things, you know, if the I use the higher time frame, so it's like the weekly, daily are all trending. I can take the trades. It's, I'm just using the EMAs. So I trade predominantly the four hour and the daily. That's where I'm entering. As long as I've got like a three time frames aligned, you know, I'm good to go. That's my, that's the signal. And, and you find that, you know, you find there's ample opportunities independent of, you know, the type of year or type of environment, type of volatility. Yeah. Yeah. I find I don't really focus too much on that. Obviously, there is tough periods where, you know, the breakouts don't work as well, but overall, pretty decent. So, about some of the more interesting trades that, yeah, you've made this year that maybe surprised you in terms of how well they did. And, you know, broadly speaking, how did you navigate this year, which yeah, I keep going back to has been, I think, deceptive in the way the market has behaved. Certainly some interesting currency movements, but on the Forex side, but what have you been trading this year? So this year recently, I've been trading uh, EuroCAD. That was probably the last big trade that I traded. I was on the four hour. That one just, it, it just shot up. But yeah, I really like the JPY pairs recently. They're really heavily trending. Got some good trades on them this year. But going forward, definitely be looking at, you know, the NASDAQ, S&P, you know, for the Santa Claus rally. Hopefully can catch something on that if it sets up. So yeah, that's mainly the, the markets that have done pretty well. And are you also doing shorting? I mean, if you're doing breakouts, you're going long, right? Is it just purely on the long side? No, long and short. With the NASDAQ, I only go long though. You know, based on the results and historical data, you know, it made trends upwards more than it goes down. Sam, let's go through some of your posts on your website. And you've got a post talking about common trading biases. 
because you went from somebody who didn't necessarily grow up in, in the field of investing and kind of learned along the way, like you know, your cousin being the catalyst for that. Mm-hmm. What were some of the, as you look back, what were some of the, the traps or biases that you yourself fell for? And then what are ones that now you're observing as you've been doing this longer? You know, others are falling into themselves. Yeah, a big one was recency bias, you know, based in recent results and letting that affect, you know, my next future ed. So that's something, you know, that, you know, I still feel today a little bit, you know, I don't think you ever really get rid of these things. You just obviously learn to take the energy away and manage them a bit better. But yeah, recency bias was a, a big one. And then, and then uh, hindsight bias as well. You know, the, everything looks clearer in hindsight. Yeah, and it's hard to... It's hard for people to be aware of the bias and do anything about it, right? I, I think yeah. from a behavioral perspective, regret is known to be the most powerful emotion, right? And the problem with hindsight yeah. bias is recency bias is that it makes you regret more, right? The the alternative uh, history had taken a different action. Yeah, it can really mess with your head. You know, these are the things you need to learn. Learn how not to overthink and, you know, keep awareness of what triggers you. And then, you know, constantly work on them. Until, you know, you get good at it. But yeah, w- with me personally, I had to do a lot of work on the mental side of things. A lot, a lot of work. That's why I'm a big proponent of it on me, on my Twitter. I share a lot of psychology stuff. How, how did you find the psychology side of things, Michael? In my yeah. case, you know, I would stress that it's more than just rules. It's about the opportunity set. That's why I was kind of trying to go in that direction a little bit. You know, if somebody were to do a, you know, a breakout strategy for U.S. large cap tech, the last 10 years, you did great. If you tried to do that on emerging markets and that was, you know, your mandate, your opportunity said, good luck because that's been much more meat averting than trend following, right? In, in the kind of sideways emerging markets. I, I prefer being rules based despite the loudness with which I frame things on X because, you know, I do believe that you have to be unemotional when you trade, but at the same time, you know, you have to be very aware that there are cycles that favor tailwinds based on whatever signal you're following and how you're executing on it. And where are you based in, Alan? Based in the UK, near near Manchester. It's in it's Lancashire. But yeah, the nearest place you'll probably know, Michael, is, is Manchester. It's quite near there. Where about are you based? Uh, I mean, I'm in the US myself, in New York. But I, I mentioned that because I think, you know, there's always home bias, right, when it comes to trading <laughs> stocks, right? So speaking about biases, do you, when you're doing individual stocks, you know, you mentioned the NASDAQ, right? So obviously you're going more than just the UK equity markets, but... I mean, are you, do you find that you tend to gravitate more towards, you know, home equities than global or you just don't care? No, not at all. Really don't care, really. Uh, totally unbiased with the markets in general. But that, yeah, that's an interesting, I've never really thought about that. I've heard anyone say that before. That's quite interesting. Have you found that to be a common theme with people? Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's that it's worked, at least if you're in the US, right? Yeah. Ever since 20. 12, 2013, really around the QE3 era, you know, it became a, the global equity landscape became dominated by U.S., right? It became dominated by U.S. because it became dominated by large cap tech, you know, the fame phenomenon to now the things of seven. And, you know, a home bias in the U.S. has worked because the truth is if you diversified outside the U.S. the last decade, yeah, you've lagged pretty badly. I mean, I talked to a lot of SL caters and advisors, valuations be damned, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Now, you know, classic financial theory, investment theory would say, no, you want to diversify globally. You want more than just, you know, any particular market. But, you know, it's hard to get people to to believe that when, you know, FOMO is so much, you know, so overwhelming in, in our day-to-day type of way of looking at markets. Yeah, FOMO, it's a big killer. I, I used to struggle with that in the beginning. 
it's a very common mistake to do in it. Yeah, and I got to assume, and yeah, I want to hear your thoughts on this too, that you know, if you're trying to build, let's say, a trading community, it can be a it can be a blessing and a curse in some ways, right? Meaning if you're trying to get people to to be aware of their biases and their sharing ideas, yeah, and then suddenly that idea that one person brings up is working, everybody else starts being on it, right? Then you've got a little bit of a group think in a trading community, which you never really want to have. Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying there. I'm, I'm very aware of that as well with my Discord. I tend, what I tend to do, like I share my trades, I share my entering, but I don't show the, the result because I find that, can create FOMO and anxiety and things like that. And it's, I see it all the time. And you need to be very careful of that. Uh, yeah, I'm not really too sure what the solution is to that. You know, just keep, you know, reminding people that you need to do your own thing. That's what I tend to do myself. But yeah, very true that. You see it on social media as well. You know, people only show the highlights and, you know, that creates that FOMO, that anxiety that, you you know, you're not doing right. So you need to be, you need to be careful. Yeah, I also think it shows a degree of immaturity or amateurist behavior, right? I mean, you know, I've used that line before, markets humble us all, just not all at once, right? Yeah, and love it. And, and I think that's hard for people to, to understand, especially if you like the last several years, they're seemingly just killing it because they're taking on undue concentration risk in some of these big stocks that are moving. God bless them, they're making money. But, you know, I, I always stress this point that even, you know, even a few years in the context of market cycles is nothing. It could be randomness. Yeah, that's why you need to understand it's a, a probabilistic game. You know, a lot of people come into the game thinking it's going to be easy. It's going to be a get-rich-quick scheme, but it's, it's a get-rich-slow scheme, really, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a get, it's a, it, and it can't be a get-bankrupt-quick. <laughs> that as well, yeah. <laughs> right, which, which actually is, I think, an important direction to kind of think through, which is there's, I think the risk of ruin is far higher in today's environment than ever before. Not even because of market views, you know, in my case, me thinking that there's a credit event, you know, at some point on the corporate side uh, out there, but just in terms of the ease with which people can leverage and take on more risk than their risk tolerance, you know, would normally allow. And that gets into sort of a conversation around how do you know how much risk to take? I think when you're newer, when it comes to trading and investing, it's like, all right, well, you know, let me put 30% in a particular stock. Let me put 50% in a particular uh, Forex pair. I'm going to make the assumption that you probably went through a similar sort of journey on that end. Talk about sizing and how maybe as you've gotten to be, you know, a better trader, your ways of thinking about sizing have evolved. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Yeah, so when when it comes to sizing, I've never really been, I've never been one to really oversize, over leverage. That's never been my kind of style. But that, going back to why you should, you know, you test your system, you understand the data. Once you know your win rate, you can understand, you know, what is your risk of work ruin. You know, you have to ensure your win, wins are big and your losses are small and, you know, understand the probabilities and then that way you can understand the risk of return. Sorry, the risk of ruin. Yeah, 
I only risk 1% on personal accounts, you know, from trading other accounts. I always make sure it's smaller, half a percent, quarter percent. This way, you know, you can withstand the drawdowns, you know, and you're never going to lose your account as long as you're managing risk. So yeah, I always say there's two things, you know, as long as you follow your plan and you manage risks, you're going to be all right, but you need to know what, what's a risk per trade. And that also brings me to, you know, when you understand your risk of ruin, you can understand what position size to use. But what's also important is knowing what risk per size is going to be the best for you. You know, you can't be too big that you're fearful and too small that you don't care. You know, it's kind of like an emotional authority. It needs to be the right balance to keep you confident, you know, to trade and alert. Yeah, that's what I'd say with that, Matt. Yeah, I think there's another part of it too, which is that, you know, inevitably a trader, whether systematic or discretionary, will have just a a streak of bad trades, right? It's just nothing's working, right? You just kind of, and that, that shakes confidence, right? And it shakes confidence actually in a, even from a minority perspective, in an unfortunate way, because if you have a streak of bad returns, okay, well, minority reversion would say you're probably about to have a streak of better returns, but that streak of bad returns makes that trader not want to take on as much risk because they got gun shy. So minority might be coming, minority might be coming right, after a string of losses, but then they've underweighted, you know, the potential to come back because of the emotional response causing them yeah. to take less risk. Yeah. Going back to that recency bias, isn't it? You know, you're letting the, the results do the talking instead of, you know, sticking to the plan. And it's easily done. It's easily done. But that's why it's important to have that, you're going back to the data, you know, when you go through them tough periods, look at your data, understand that it's not, if it's normal for your system, you know, just carry on. Yeah, just keeping that in the forefront, you know, keeping that probabilistic mindset is a, is super, super important. One thing that I got to imagine is that that's challenging is, yeah, if you're going to be a full-time trader, this is your primary source of, of wealth building and income. How do you manage your own personal expenses? Because that's the other thing too. I think a lot of people, you know, and I've seen this with other traders I've known, they they go through a win streak, they're making tons of money, and then they start spending more because they assume it's going to be permanent, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. So one part of this is, you know, the actual trading. Other part of this is the kind of expense management because you're going to be pulling out from your trading account. How do you manage that? I got to assume that's actually a pretty fine line to walk in terms of how much to spend and then your confidence around your portfolio. Yeah, yeah. Great question, Mike. So I, I always um, say that I wrote this in, in my book about the power of multiple income streams. So I'm a big believer in, you know, having other income streams to support yourself because that way, if you do go through a bad period in your trading, at least you've still got money coming in. And that way you can trade better from an emotional standpoint. You know, you're not trading from that scarcity mindset where you're trading, trading out of fear. You know, you have to make money. You know, that's why, I, you know, I do my courses and my books. You know, that's another source of income. Also, I always make sure I have a buffer, you know, at least 12, 12 months of expenses saved up, you know, a safe fund just in case, you know, things do go a bit uh, iffy. But yeah, when you've got, oh, and that's another thing, I don't like have a car or anything. You know, so don't have any unnecessary expenses that I don't, that are, you know, that are liabilities. You know, if I don't need to drive anywhere because I'm working from home, you know, that's another thing I can save a bit of money on. But yeah, when you've got um, other income streams, safe fund, all this is going to help you emotionally to trade better. You know, you're going to have a good, better psychology, good mindset. So yeah, that's what, uh, what I'd advise, you know, what I do. Yeah, I mean, it's a different way of thinking about diversification. 
more than just the yeah. portfolio. Just to reset the room for those that are here, everybody, please make sure you follow Alan Edward here on X. If you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, this will be podcast under Lead Lag Live. So you mentioned that you wrote a book. I'm curious to hear about that process. Writing a book is never easy. And I often find that the best way to learn something is to teach it. So I'm sure that probably kind of expanded your own knowledge there as you were doing that. But talk about that journey and that process. Yeah, writing the book. So it's called The Blueprint to Training Psychology. So it's all about, you know, what I think is important on the mindset side. But yeah, the process behind that, I just, you know, I just took it one day at a time, one page, one one sentence at a time and just, and just did it that way. But yeah, in the book, we talk about the deep stuff, you know, like the self-image, building that, the subconscious kind of side of things. Then there's the more practical, where I talk about the probabilistic thinking and things like that. Uh, but yeah, there's like mental models in there and things that can help you. So yeah, I felt like I had to give back with the book. I felt like there was um, a lot of things that were, wasn't being told out there. I mean, there's some good psychology books, but a lot of them are practical. So I wanted to, wanted to make something that traders could reference, you know, and, and actually use with whatever problem they were coming up with in, in whatever stage of the career. But yeah, I'm uh, really proud of the book and uh, we've had some Good reviews on that as well. Yeah, happy with that. Going back to how I started the conversation, divergent makes me think of contrarian. Where's that that moniker come from? Why do you call it yourself the divergent trader? Yeah, yeah. So I got the word divergent from because going back to the beginning where I said I, I was into trend following. So I went down the rabbit hole and I read all the books and there was one called uh, Trend Following Managed Futures by Catherine Kalinsky, I think she's called, and she talks about how there's convergent strategies and divergent strategies. Now, a convergent strategy is where you can have lots of small wins, but you can have the occasional big loss and that just wipes out everything out. But a divergent approach, which is what she was in trend following, was, you know, you can have lots of small losses, but then you can get them big wins and big outlier events. And, you know, that pays for all the losses and more. So that mythology just just it resonated with me, you know? So yeah, that's where the, the divergent trader came from. When you're trading, are you know, asking colleagues, friends, you know, those that are part of your service, you know, what they're doing as well? Or do you try to just you know, kind of be in the zone and, and shut things out? Because I think that kind of goes back to that point about the FOMO. Mm-hmm. I've named the space for moving the noise and trading because the reality is that is critical. But and if you're rules based, you know, noise doesn't matter, right? You're just going to follow the rules. But still, for a lot of people that are not in that mindset, it's it's hard for them to understand the the difference between something that has a signal and something that has noise. Yeah, so w- when I'm trading, I, I'm like a ghost. You know, I, I turn off all, all the social media uh, and things like that. I, I want to be focused and I don't want any distractions. So yeah, for me, everything gets uh, turned off. I'm just in the zone when I'm trading, which is which is important. A big thing that um, I talk about is your you know your routine. You need a good routine that gets you that has no distractions, that you can stay focused, that keeps you calm. I think the routine is very important, um, especially for day traders as well. Back when I day traded, you know, I had a very strict routine because you have to, you know, when you're trading them lower time frames, it has to, be, you have to be on it, you know. And that, that was another reason why I went up in the time frames, you know, it was a bit more relaxed. Didn't have to be as strict. What keeps you excited when it comes to markets and trading, right? I mean, I think if, yeah, obviously there's the excitement of making money, but, you know, again, I think, there's people that you've seen the same stats, right? They get into trading and then they pull off after you know, a couple of years. Most 
individual traders tend to not stay trading. You know, they end up doing other things over time, either because, either because they're not good at it or they get bored with it or whatever it would be. Mm-hmm. What keeps you yourself motivated? You know, again, with the caveat that I understand, it's a full-time thing for you. Yeah, but you, you want to have passion for it to be good at it, but you don't want to make it feel like a job too. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. So yeah, I just love it. You know, I'm really, I just have a passion for it. I love everything about it. But when it comes to staying motivated, what I like to do is I like to set goals are what really help me. Goals are what help me like get to where I wanted to be, but it also helps me sustain my success. So I'm always setting goals. And with goals, I always have reward systems. So if, you know, if I process focused goals, then if I follow through, then I reward myself. So it can be something, you know, pretty big, uh, something to look forward to. And I find that helps keep the motivation going. Yeah, goal setting, I think, is the absolute key. And it's, I think it's something that really, really helps for me anyway, the goal setting part. As far as other things that you tend to look at besides breakouts, any other favorite trading strategies or signals that you tend to gravitate towards? Or you know, going back to the simple is better, you just focus on the breakouts and that's it? So, yeah, 80% of my trading is breakouts. But I do have this system that I created called, it's called the MW Divergent Pattern. So it's like an ugly double top where it takes out the liquidity of the first peak. So I do trade that sometimes when the markets are setting up the reversals and it works pretty well. I also use it in the breakout system for uh, selling into strength. So if I see that setting up, I know there's a good chance it could reverse. So I take a bit off. So yeah, that's the other strategy that I trade. But I always, I, if I'm trading, if I'm trading that, it has to be really high probability. So a lot of things have to be ready, lined up. But yeah, that's a popular one that a lot of students like as well. What else do you think people should be aware of when they are starting off trading? Again, mistakes that you made and things other than the recency bias. You know, what are some of the things that you think people need to be self-conscious of or aware of in the beginning stages? So I probably say, just off the top of my head, that just because you have like a, a good month or something like that doesn't mean you've got it because... I, I was there myself, you know, you have a good month and you think, wow, I've cracked this. And and that's another thing. If you start noticing yourself saying, yeah, I've got this, I've mastered it. That's, that's a, a red flag right there, you know? So when you know, you know, you've got it, if, if you've like got consistent consistency after like a year, you know, when you've seen it like that, and you've gone through the drawdowns, that's when you know you've got it. But yeah, in the early stages, it's easy to think that you've, you know, you've mastered something. So that would probably be one of them. Yeah, no, and listen, I mean, I, you know, you, you and I were DMing saying, you know, what do you want to talk about? I often just have yeah. and think through things, right? It kind of makes it more natural. But no, I, I, there's a lot of wisdom, I think, in what you're, what you're talking about, what you're saying, right? And I think the social media side has really distorted uh, people's perceptions of what trading is. I also think the cycle has distorted people's perceptions because, you know, they fall for these individual stocks, make a lot of money. But, you know, that may be just sort of a flash in the pan and maybe just randomness and luck. I do think it's hard for people to understand the distinction between skill and luck when it comes to trading. Most people will say it's skill when they're doing well and then luck when it's not doing well, (laughs) right? The reality is that it's a constant and you don't really know how much of your approach is skill versus luck. You know, listen, you can have the best system in the world, but if if you happen to implement that system at the exact wrong part of the cycle, you know, that's just bad luck. Yeah, I agree. Probably another thing I would say as well is, is journaling. You know, a lot of traders don't journal in the beginning. If you start journaling, what get, gets measured gets uh, managed, you know. So even if the strategy, you know, you're not getting the results you want, as long as you're mani- uh, journaling everything, you can learn to find the tweaks and adapt it and improve it. So that's a big one as well. So I'd say make sure you're journaling everything, where, you know, 
all the metrics and your emotions as, as well. You know, I, I'm a big believer in like the strategy has to fit your personality. You, like you can't trace someone else's strategy exactly like them. You know, you have to mold it to your personality a little bit, you know, because we've all got different beliefs and different risk profiles. So it has to be, you have to sort of make it your own a little bit. Are there any kind of old school traders or gurus that you kind of look to as, you know, saying the word heroes is maybe a little bit too extreme, but just, you know, people that when you look into their story, to the way they trade, you just kind of gravitate towards a sort of an example for you? Yeah. Oh, there's loads of different heroes. I always, I always find inspiration from traders. My first love was Ed Sakoda. Uh, when I read his Market Wizards interview, that really stuck with me. I really liked um, how he thought about things and his simplicity. Ed Sakoda was one. Uh, Michael Marcus. Martin Minavina. Yeah, I'm a really big fan of him. He's, um, he's got a great mindset. I, I always gravitate to those who have, you know, that, that winning, winning mindset, you know. I feel like there's more to learn from them kind of people. And, you know, people like Mark, he, he's uh, especially great for that. Yeah, no, I've actually, I'm usually on my cue to have on a, on a space mark. He's yeah, apparently very busy, but he's, yeah. he's back and forth. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And then, you know, you've got your service, you've got your coaching, coaching in, and trying to help with trading psychology, I think is interesting. I am curious about that side of sort of the income stream for you, meaning, you know, who are the type of people that find you, that come to you and what's the kind of help that you work with them on? Yes, obviously, the, the, there's the different sides is the, the strategy side of things. That's where uh, mostly it's like the rule-based course that I do. You know, people come through that and we work on the strategy routine and a bit on the psychology. With the coaching, um, it's a bit of everything, mostly on the psychology side. Uh, with that, we work through a lot of um, lot of things. For example, you know, working on mental models to help with, you know, the co cognitive distortions, identifying them and, you know, learning to challenge how you think and things like that. And yeah, just working on the self-image, creating the right habits. There's a lot of things we work into. It can get quite deep and intensive. Al, for those who want to, I know you got to hop a little earlier, but for those who want to track more of your thoughts and more of your work, um, yeah, where would you point them to? And and maybe what's the, the single biggest piece of advice you'd give to newer traders who, you know, were kind of in a similar situation to you, kind of in a maybe a somewhat of a dead-end job, not really sure what to do, but wanting to have their own breakouts. What's your biggest single piece of advice? Um, a single piece of advice. I'd probably say, make sure you manage risk. Get that down first. And that way, you know, you can survive the learning curve. And then eventually, when you get it, you'll be able to thrive. But you have to be able to stay in the game long enough, you know, to gain the experience and grow. So you can't do that if you've got no chips and you've blown it all. So main focus should always be on managing your risk to begin with. Get that down. So that'd be my, my biggest takeaway. And, and where do people find you, Alan? Oh, sorry. Yeah. So uh, you can find me on Twitter, Trader Divergent, Instagram as well. The website, thedivergenttrader.com, if you uh, want, want to learn more. And yeah, that's mainly the socials. YouTube as well, Trader Divergent. Appreciate everybody that joined here. I have a couple more spaces coming up later in the week. Hopefully I will see you all then. And please make sure you follow Alan here on X. I appreciate it, Alan. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Michael, for having me on. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time out. Thank you. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own.
A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.